Hello, listeners, and welcome to Season 4 of Danceville Podcast. In 2020, dancers all over the world embarked in an experience they may never have imagined, taking class online. Bedroom corners and car garages became studio spaces as we all attempted to maintain our craft in quarantine. Concerns were plentiful. How will dancers of all ages move safely in their homes without supervision or hands-on corrections? These and many other questions were legitimately posed. However, what we found were a surprising number of benefits to online dance education. Only with time will we know if the benefits outweigh the risks. In the meanwhile, I spoke with two professionals to learn more about this new phenomenon. Caitlin Trainer is a dance educator and also the founder of Dancio, which has been offering virtual classes for a few years now. Danelle Dixon is a DPT based in Washington, D.C., who offers us a clinician's perspective on this debate. We've got a lot of great conversation to share, so let's get right to episode 71, Virtual Class, Friend or Foe. Buckle your seatbelts. On this episode, nutrition, life coach, dance and performance, psychological development, and today you are in for treat. Hi. Hello. This is Ellie Kushner. And this is Marissa Schaefer from Dancewell Podcast. Dancewell Podcast. Caitlin Trainer, thank you so much for being here. Do you want to um, let listeners know who you are? Sure. Um, thanks for having me on here. I am a dancer, choreographer. I'm a member of the faculty at Barnard College, Columbia University, and I'm an entrepreneur. So I'm the founder of Dancio.com, and we provide online dance classes with really excellent, amazing instructors. Great. And you've been doing that for a couple of years. So do you mind just telling us like when you started that and how it came to be, why you created it um, long before the pandemic? Absolutely. So I think it was 2014 and um, I went into the studio and hadn't been able to get to class. And like I said, I'm a choreographer. So, you know, giving myself a warm up ends up being this investigative event instead of just getting the facts and, and getting it done. It's like 45 minutes figuring out a new tondu that's super musical is not actually very effective when you have other creative work to do. And so in, in a, an attempt to hold myself to the task, I said, you know, what? let me just grab a warm up off of YouTube. And um, I fell into this black hole of searching for something that would be suitable. And um, it's not that it's entirely without anything um, useful, but the curatorial process is intense. And there's so much of, of various um, qualities um, ranging from poor like film quality or sound quality or something that's filmed from someone's iPhone hanging out of their purse with like feet walking by. Um, and I thought, how can this be like what this is 2014 or I think maybe it was 2015 by then I said, I can build this. This should exist because at that time this was pre Peloton, but there was yoga glow and all of these kind of streaming fitness apps. And I thought if this doesn't exist, I should make it. <laughs> and, and I've been working on it ever since. Big ideas. Oh my gosh. Execution. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I, your, your opening video is truly Kent just to give people an idea. Um, and then you have other genres as well, ballet, modern. So let's start to talk about, um, 
virtual classes, friend or foe, you <laughs> and, um, and healthy times, you teach live classes. You are a regular in studio dance educator. Um, what do you feel like you're able to offer in a live class that can't be captured in a video? Oh gosh, so much. And it's funny because I'm like very live class person for me in particular, my class is very experiential, very responsive to students. I come in with a lesson plan and change it 12 times within the context of the class, um, just based on what I'm seeing and feeling in the room. Um, and I think that live class and virtual class just need to be thought of as very differently valuable to students. And, you know, what I see as dance in general providing for us is an intense community through a physical practice. And I think that there's something very fundamentally human about what we share in a dance studio or, you know, playing rugby together or any physical practice that's shared. It's nonverbal communication. It's physically intimate without necessarily being sexual at all, um, which is something I think as, you know, at least in, in America, Puritanical America, it's something we hunger for, whether consciously or unconsciously. Um, I think, you know, just sweating together and sharing a space together and accepting one another as humans um, is, is something fundamental. And I think there's something that really synthesizes under ideal conditions, you know, the, the mind, the heart, the spirit, you know, with music and movement and togetherness that is really unique to a live class. And, and of course, the teacher and the personal relationship between teacher and student and the knowing one another in that way is also really special um, and irreplaceable. I totally agree. Um, I'm not really worried that our uh, long-term careers as educators are at risk, despite the the online presence of dance classes right now. Um, personally, right. Um, what about pedagogically? Like, what sort of um, instructional cueing, feedback, um, interactions are you? able to offer in the studio that seem really essential and important? Um, a lot of the feedback I give is actually bringing us out of what I call the iPod, meaning, you know, we've been acculturated. I mean, we're even past like the boom box where we had portable music, you know, originally what live instrumentation, it's a shared experience. Right. And then we have like, you know, recorded music, but we could take it with us with boom boxes. And now there's an iPod where you're closed off and you're listening to your own thing. And so a lot of what I share and think about in the studio is about opening up our movement experience, our listening experience and our awareness to a shared event. And so that is everything from breathing together to sensing where your peers are in space and a lot of sensory cues that are related not only to the floor, but even the windows and, the, you know, everything that's around us in a shared space is a lot of the cueing that I do, which, of course, would be entirely irrelevant in an online class. Yeah, um, what about like alignment and placement and um technical instruction? Sure. So, you know, one of the challenges of virtual instruction is like identifying personal idiosyncrasies and specifics and how to, you know, and um, cue a student to work on those. And what I know as a dance educator over the years is that there are lots of patterns, like 
patterns of things we need to improve. Like, okay, there's the kind of anterior tipped pelvis pattern. So what are the positive cues that I can give as an educator that helps someone to align their pelvis? Now, there's also another pattern that might be a posterior tipped pelvis, right? So what I do as an educator and might also translate over a virtual platform, for example, is give cueing for a neutral pelvis, right? So wherever you are, if you follow these cues, you're going to get to your neutral pelvis. And that will be irrelevant of um, your, you know, the shape of your buttocks and whether they're protuberant or not, or the shape of your abdomen. It's about like the organization of your internal structures. Um, Anyway, there's certainly a lot lost without being able to see and interact in the live medium, no doubt about it. But I think there are ways that if we're um, thoughtful, we can provide value even in technical endeavors. Let's move into that direction. What are um, those positive offerings? Not even just, well, I can still manage to do this in an online class, but what can an online class offer that cannot be accomplished in the studio? Sure. I mean, I think the strengths and weaknesses of, of um, online learning are the inverse of one another. So while you don't have that kind of external eye, that also can be a liberation for dancers. And particularly for this younger generation, I mean, there's always, there's an inherent vulnerability, right, to a student and teacher relationship, because there's some um, power structure at play there. And there needs to be a trust and a safety and a, and a quality um, uh, that's established there and, and that we hope to have translate either way. But when a student doesn't have eyes on her, then, or him, she, they, him, her, they, that student can move freely and without any idea of being criticized. And, you know, I'm a Gen Xer, right? So Gen Xers, we were very help yourself, figure it out. You, we watched MacGyver, you know, you, you figure out your own solutions. We could call it neglect. We were lucky <laughs> kids or we were inventive and resourceful. And while this, these wonderful generations coming up, you know, the millennials and the wise and the zoomers are not acculturated to that because they're much more supervised, um, much more anxious. There are a lot of um, trends um, in identity for those populations um, that I think this actually presents an opportunity to open up. And one of that is, you know, they're accustomed to being micromanaged. Well, look, here you have this opportunity to feel to respond, to take agency over your learning, to fiddle with your hip joint and go, hmm, what does that mean on my particular leg? Instead of having your teacher say, good job, that's correct. But suffice it to say, I think for these gen- this up and coming generations, um, at first they might feel disenchanted with virtual learning as we all do. It's not a big inspiring space to move in in most cases, right? But there's an opportunity to dig in, to find that intrinsic motivation, to do sensation-based movements, to experiment, to explore without supervision um, and any authority that's in the room with you. And I think that could be um, really an exciting place to work. I love that. I I totally agree. I I also am thinking back to like, um, like you really dated us as contemporaries when you used the word boom box and I'm going to use another <laughs> one here. Um, VHS, you know, th- do you remember like you'd have like one or two videos and you would just watch them like over and over again <laughs> because there wasn't an infinite supply. And like when I think about Dancio, I also think about like 
the ability to like go back to Julie Kent and play it again and again because we know as teachers saying something once is not enough, right? You can have a brilliant um, philosophy of understanding and articulate it very clearly and it does not mean that every listening attentive student in the class will class will grasp it, right? Like Absolutely. And so that ability to like as a student go back and really like do a deep dive into Julie Kent's teaching. I'm just using her as an example and philosophies mm-hmm. and, you know, approach seems also like a real wealth of potential. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of richness to that repetition and the depth. Um, and similarly to be able to compare pedagogies and movements and forms is also you know, one of the most fascinating things for me while watching these brilliant teachers, for example, is seeing the teachers from American Ballet Theater versus the teachers from New York City Ballet. I'm like, whoa, (laughs) that is like a whole different form. Um, And that must be fascinating for students who are schooled in one form or the other. Um, But absolutely, I think think one of the things that I see in my own students, um, and particularly, you know, pre-professional dancers, is um, a challenge with taking authority over their movement. And it's really not related to skill. And I think in their minds, I see them thinking like, once I master this thing, then I'll be confident doing it. And once I then do this thing, then I'll be confident doing it. And, you know, I'm so hungry to see students say, this is how I'm doing this. And that's working and then they can focus on artistic or expressive or storytelling or whatever their intention is. And um, I think there's an opportunity for that in independent work, for going deeper, for taking ownership and authority. And I'm curious to see where this will go if students do persevere with it. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the ifs. Um, So (laughs) do you have any insights on online instruction? Because I've heard several people who I respect and um, talk with often speak to the fact that giving an online class the way you would give an in-studio class is problematic, right? So when we are forced to go online in the spring and we try to continue on with our way of teaching that we were using in the studio, except we're on Zoom, it it doesn't succeed as well. It's like any other medium. You have to think, what can this medium offer? What can it do? What is its potential? And how can I take advantage of that potential? And how can I let go of the things that it doesn't do well and still give a good class, right? Um, Absolutely. (laughs) so, So what are, and I've heard some creative things like, you know, even just people talking about using pause, you know, like saying, I'm gonna give this movement and then instead of the teacher doing it over and over and over again for the video, if it's a an asynchronous experience, saying, now pause here. That's the end of the phrase. Go back and watch it as many times as you need. <laughs> you know, right. little cues like that. So do you have any other um, insights on how to give online instruction in a way that really addresses its unique function and abilities? 
Well, gosh, um, first and foremost, I think it's important that we do think about the value equation in this very different medium. And in general, in society, as we reckon with this extremely complicated situation of COVID, I think we, you know, obviously there's a lot of pain and suffering, but this is a huge opportunity for innovation and rethinking and reimagination. And, you know, that's the hope I have for a new future. And, um, in reimagining whatever we're doing and then, you know, in the after period, whatever that looks like, um, that we can look and survey the landscape and say, well, this is what was valuable and I'm going to take this away and keep it. And, you know, we'll leave that in, in the, in the not again box. Um, but in terms of online teaching, I think, um, number one thing is just spatial responsiveness and queuing for that. And not only for safety, but also for a rich dancing experience, like, if you're teaching and you're really attached, like this goes downstage and that goes upstage and this goes stage right and this goes stage left, it's going to be hard for the student at home. And she's not only going to have difficulty um, physically negotiating it, but she's going to have more difficulty in, in having an experience in whatever space she's in, right? We know that people are dancing in hugely varied spaces. So let's acknowledge that and use the space as a dynamic and use the cueing. So like, okay, I'm going to do this side to side, but it could also be di diagonal upstage. It could also be axial. So differentiating options and um, that students can say, you know what, I'm dancing in a studio. I have this projected larger than life. Great. I'm going to take it across the floor. Otherwise, I'm going to use it as a plie pulsing exercise rather than a traveling jump. Right. So I think having um, differentiated options is a big thing. Um, also, and, and this is more of like something that I'm just experiencing and I suspect might be similar to um, other students is. There's a lot to process when you're in any given non-dance studio space and not having the capacity to step into, you know, a dedicated location for whatever you're doing means that there's more distractions and also, you know, whatever is going on in your life. Right. So for me, when I take a class, I, I just I call it just the facts, like just tell me what to do and give me a concrete, simple task. Like if I'm contemplating my identity at the moment of execution, that doesn't always work for me in this particular virtual moment. Um, and I so I think, you know, give tasks that are achievable and tangible within the space a student is working in can be simple and gratifying. Um, and one of the things that I've done to foster that through my practice at home is we're doing what's called a fast class. And this is one way that I think an online class can provide a different type of value than an in-person class. So I have, for example, Alyssa Clark's class on dance, who is one of my favorites. And she, you know, her full class runs something like an hour and three minutes. And I found myself after I did it, twice like okay I know what she's about to say so I'm just going to fast forward to the exercise so now we have what's called a fast class edit that goes directly through from exercise to exercise without stopping and so I go from literally being on the floor to across the floor in 28 minutes and it's a really fun different way to go deep into an exercise deep into a class uses conditioning it's it kind of it, it takes the thinking away and then you can focus on doing. Um, and so I think that's one way that we can get a different value out of a virtual class and um, something that seems to work for students. I think that sounds really helpful. And I've been thinking about how 
like balancing, you know, synchronous where everyone is in the Zoom at the same time versus asynchronous where it's a video that like Dancio where you can watch it on your own time and thinking like it is so hard to learn material <laughs> in the Zoom setup, mm-hmm. right? It's so hard to learn a phrase. And so using those asynchronous opportunities to teach what the choreography is and then using the synchronous opportunities to actually address quality and artistic components and and go more richly into the material, I think is um, smart. So you're sort of modeling that a little bit with your fast class version. Oh, that's the way you just worded that made me realize what you're talking about, I think, has a name, which is a flipped classroom. Yes, right. The flipped classroom. Exactly. Where the students do it's traditionally used in an academic setting where students yeah, do the online lecture via a video that they can watch on their own time. They can go back and rewatch things that didn't make sense to them three times before continuing with the lesson. And then when they get into the classroom setting, they do the exploratory laboratory discussion interactive piece. Yep. And I also think you said something earlier that I just want to go back to, which is the teach what you do want idea, you know, so in a classroom, you see the student doing the anterior tilt and you can say, oh, your anterior tilting, you're tilting your pelvis anteriorly. Don't do that. Do this. Right. Whereas in a online format, you can't see what they're doing. So you can say, don't do this and don't do that and don't do this. But it's it's a little probably more effective to just say, do find a neutral pelvis. And here's what that might feel like to use your example from earlier. Right. And that's actually one of my general pedagogical goals, particularly because in my teaching at Barnard Columbia, I have a lot of high achieving perfectionist beginner dance students. And what that means, and we're all, I mean, gosh, if I get criticism, I feel a little sensitive about it myself. I mean, you know, I'm like, my teacher will give me some little correction. I'm thinking about it for three days instead of just fixing it. So my goal pedagogically with that population and also, you know, the, the generation seem to get more and more sensitive every year. So I just, you know, I try to be adaptive um, to their needs is that I try to translate every negative thing I see into a positive cue anyway. So if someone's slouching, I'll say like energy through the central channel and out the top of the head. So, you know, and then, you know, those patterns and you know, those things and you can give those cues. And if they're not applicable, people can just leave them. Right. Totally. Um, but yeah, that's, that's always the goal for me as a teacher. And, and I see um, folks doing that a lot in their online forums. So. And I also have found myself getting better and better at um, sort of scaffolding and progressing in online even more than I did in person, I guess just because it like highlights different components of our teaching and sort of dismisses others. And so like, I find myself being much better about saying like, here's option A. Okay. Now you can continue to do option A. If option A is right for you, here's option B if you want a little more. Okay. So let's, here's what that could look like. How, how'd it feel? Like it, keep going. Don't like it. Go back to option A, you know, and option C, et cetera. So I find that that's something I have been able to work on in a much more um, clear and intentional way while being online. That's a very good point and well said. And I think that's exactly, exactly what I'm sensing from, you know, just, just switching and, and it's almost like the structural aspects of teaching matter more. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, 
and also the content, like the structure and the content seems much more forward on the online mm-hmm. platform and the because we don't have that human interactive part, which is often so um, sensorily present when we're teaching in the mm-hmm. classroom. So it's like, yeah, I'm finding that really valuable and interesting. Um, how do you feel about safety? Do you have concerns about dancers practicing unsupervised? Uh, what are those concerns and how are you navigating them if, if they exist? Sure. I do have some concerns, um, but my basic thinking is that actually the dance culture that a a person experiences as they're coming up through whatever their dance education is, lays the foundation for their capacity to adapt to their surroundings and use their judgment. And I think one of the um, greatest challenges that I find in dance education is that because it is you know, a performance-based form, and there is a task that needs to be completed successfully, that it's often hard for students then to have a responsive, adaptive relationship to their environment and to their own body. And like, just to say, hey, body, does that feel okay? Rather, they have a teacher who's saying yes or no. Often, not always. It really depends on the cueing and what they're accustomed to and what their home environment is and what religion they practice. I mean, there's so much about like, do we listen and respond to the cues that our bodies are giving us regarding safety, well-being, um, and so forth? And I think that's like number one is I just think of our culture and our society. And gosh, couldn't we do better at teaching all the new humans coming up about um, responsivity to their own bodies, right? Um, and and responsivity to the bodies around them also. And so, you know, when it comes to teaching online, are there a ton of um, safety issues, first and foremost, just like don't bump my if you have stuff in your way, mm-hmm. right? Um, is is that the responsibility of the teacher? I tend to think less less that that's useful. Um, I think a little reminder of the teacher, you know, about, hey, take care of your bodies. I know you might not have the space here and there. A peppering is useful to give the student, to reinforce the permission that the student has to adapt to her environment. But um, you know, largely, I think that students are aware that this isn't a regular space and or I hope that they're aware of that and and that they'll negotiate accordingly. Yeah, I try to do the best, um, you know, the, the place where I am most um, cautious is in actually selecting each curating the collection, like who's teaching? Are they generally doing excellent practices with regard to health and well-being? And of course, excellence in their forms. Yes. And, you know, I'm trying not to hire anyone who's doing the wacky stuff that <laughs> makes students makes students much more vulnerable or giving cues that seem unhealthy. Yeah. And, you know, I think you're onto something like there's um, there's danger and vanity. <laughs> I don't know if vanity is the right <laughs> word, but like, yeah. I, I think, you know, we are a, a population that is aware of how we look and are seen by others that's the performing arts um nature and so i think there's actually a lot of risk also in dancers being in front of their peers and teachers and doing things that don't feel right to them i don't know and we'll have to do some research um but i i wonder if dancers actually make safer healthier more intelligent choices in the privacy of their own home with no one watching. I'm not sure. 
that that sounds intuitively right, but you know, can't speak for everyone, can we? (laughs) Right, we can't, but absolutely, absolutely. And um, what is it? Maggie Black said, "Dance is a feeling, not a looking." Mm. And um, there's something about (laughs) the sage. Um, You know, there's something about that idea of the eyes right? Whose eyes are on you? If there aren't, then what freedoms does that afford you? And so my, my thing with Dancio and with online classes is like, of course, like, you know, take care of your body and and you have permission to take care of your body. You always do. Um, it's yours, but at the same time, you know, the micromanagement of that doesn't to me, um, foster what you're really looking for, which is a body responsive relationship, not an authoritative relationship. Yeah. Um, and then I think to close, just where are you, where do you think we're going next? Both, I guess I'm curious about Dancio specifically, given that uh, you have been in the online uh, sphere even more since you, um, since this pandemic started, has that affected how you're going to think about Dancio going forward? And then just more broadly, where do you think we are heading um, in terms of dance instruction in the next, you know, few years, having had this um, complicated and intense experience with with online education and dance. Um, So for Dancio, it is, you know, an exciting time. We are now in use in a lot of colleges and universities. In fact, folks are just starting to sign up for fall and spring semester. And you know, having it as a supplemental resource in some cases and sometimes a primary educational tool. It just varies depending on the program. Um, and I mean, there's two things that we're thinking of. First and foremost, small space classes, which were less of a priority when we began filming three years ago. And um, again, classes that are really designed for home use if and when that's needed. So we are changing our curation of classes to some extent and really excited with um, all the folks, you know, that write in and say they're having a great time with it. So, so, you know, the long-term plan is to, um, expand our inclusion of different genres. And also we're in use in 50 countries and we'd like to, um, provide more forms and more content to serve, um, our users. And in terms of the future of dance, um, I think two things, one is, you know, there's a lot of, um, interesting, like, future thinking about wearables and biofeedback devices and so forth in dance that a wearable device can provide sufficient biofeedback to help a dancer say progress from a double to a triple pirouette or some other you know feat that the the student needs to improve my question is whether the engineering of such devices will um be able to account for the very variable physics of all the different bodies that exist in the different shapes of hips and legs and feet. Um, I, I think, you know, it's hard to imagine that that really will become a critical tool of the dancer. I do not think that we are going to lose our live in-person instruction. I think we will be back there as soon as it's safe, if not safer, uh, if not sooner, um, as we're seeing around the country. Um, I think it's, you know, it's a sacred and shared live experience that brings dancers together as a very um, special community. But do I think that virtual dance will forever be a critical tool and will enable innovations and collaborations and a different type of learning? 
hopefully that allows um, students not only greater access to dance, but um, some creative inspiration and some technical knowledge that they might not otherwise be able to practice. Absolutely. I totally agree. We are not going to be replaced by robots anytime soon, Caitlin. <laughs> no, I don't think so. And I'm the founder of, of, of the almost robot. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been an absolute pr- pleasure. Um, thank you, Caitlin. So you just heard from Caitlin Trainer, who, despite owning a business devoted to providing virtual class, is able to recognize both the strengths and limitations of that work. And spoiler alert, that theme continues. Um, we're moving on to Danelle Dixon, who is a DPT and um, brings to light through that clinician's lens some new issues and also some new benefits to consider when we think about um, virtual instruction. So here we go. Danelle, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk with you. And um, this is an interesting topic. So excited to, um, to chat with you about this. Yeah, there's a lot of unknowns here, aren't there? Uh, we'll explore those. And um, let's start by just saying, what have you been doing um, for the past six months? How has your COVID experience um, been as a practitioner? Um, who are you seeing? How are you treating them? things like that. Sure. Um, so COVID um, for me has been um, pretty crazy, as I think it has treated everyone. Um, I actually initially shut down my clinic and closed my clinic um, about a week prior to D.C. Um, shutting down. My practice is in Washington, D.C., because um, I kind of saw it coming um, and thought, okay, we're all going to do what we need to do and stay home, socially distanced. We'll get this in and out and over with and did not anticipate where we are right now um, to ever be on the radar of a possibility. Um, so it definitely took a while um, for me to adjust to being home all the time, um, so used to being in the clinic and running around. Um, so for my patients, I definitely transitioned um, quite a few of my patients online. Um, and initially, it was it worked out really well, but People really, at least in this area, prefer being in person. So unless there was something really um, urgent in terms of an acute injury or um, something that really need to be addressed, someone was in a lot of pain, I really found um, that people were like, we'll wait, you know. And on top of that, you know, we're now dealing with COVID-19. We're now dealing with a global pandemic, which is quite a bit of unknown for a lot of people. So a lot of the usual attention, the aches and pains that people would pay attention, definitely took a backseat. Um, so that that was a change in terms of what happened um, in the clinic. Um, at this point, I've now been reopened for about two months, um, and that has been equally turbulent in terms of people come in. Um, again, when things are very, you know, urgent and things are going on and then kind of taper off because there's still quite a bit of fear, at least in, um, in my area in Washington, D.C., of being outdoors and getting outside. Um, and that combined with the social justice issues that's been going on um, has just really produced um, a, a different approach to getting into rehab and to going outdoors. Um, so I'm finding myself doing quite a bit of combination of in-person in the clinic and online to tape, um, to balance off 
you know, patients desire to not be um, in contact with a lot of people. Um, and that has been relatively working well. It's slow, but building up. Um, so, yeah, that's what um, been, has been going on with the clinic. In terms of my dancers specifically, um, dancers have definitely slowed down. I've been working a lot with um, two professional dancers online and also a couple of other performing artists like violinists in the clinic. Um, but a lot of the professional dancers have definitely tapered off because they're now not working. Um, so finances are a concern, you know, getting back to work is a concern. Um, and uh, a lot of my interaction with them has now shifted very heavily to education, which I think is um, the silver lining of COVID. You know, like we, we're all very quiet. We all, our attention is now all focused online because we're indoors and we're socially distancing. Um, this is the perfect time to really get into um, the things that you would not usually have time for. Education is a big part of that. Um, Cross-training is a big part of that. Um, and really, you know, fine-tuning your craft and looking at all of the components of the things that makes a professional dancer amazing and working on those individual things now that there's so much downtime. And um, so I've found myself doing a lot more education than I have been in the past. I agree with you. It's a silver lining. And there are so many different directions we could go with this in terms of just talking about the virtual experience as a dancer. And we're talking today specifically about sort of dance class. Um, but I love that you accentuate that dancers get their educations from many different places and many different people. I know that for sure, that it's not just dance teachers who are doing the educating. It's also practitioners, um, healthcare providers, and stuff like that. Um, thinking specifically about dance class, using mm -hmm. your your DPT perspective, do you, do you think that dancers' technical and physiological needs can be met in this virtual class format that we're using these days? Um, I, I don't think it, it can be. It, it's an incomplete solution. It's the best solution we have to get our dancers moving. Um, it's the next best thing, it's, but it's definitely an incomplete solution. And I think there are a couple of reasons why that's the case. Um, ballet and dance in general is a very, it, it's such a technical art form and it's such a technical sport. There are so many um, details that need to happen in terms of kinematics, kinesthetics, um, the aesthetic look that needs to be performed by the dancer. Um, so there's a huge potential when you're now going to a purely visual format so that's not in, in 3D, it's now in 2D, um, to lose so many details that are essential to performing the perfect technique. Um, so I do think, you know, that is a, a huge disadvantage. Um, I think going to completely visual learning and maybe a little bit of auditory um, learning style is going to benefit those that are tuned into that. But those um, students and also teachers, actually, that really rely on a lot more um, tactile cues to really get their information to understand how to adjust their technique and to train the right way are going to be at a disadvantage. So it really... Um, there are a couple of gaps there. And again, with ballet and with dance in general, it is such, you know, we, we move in 3D. You know, we, we don't 
you know, dance in the line. You move back and forth. There's depth, there's wet, there's, you know, width, there is um, range to a lot of the movements that we do. And that's very difficult, not only to detect from a teacher's perspective and looking at someone um, online and in terms of looking at a Zoom class, but it's also difficult for a student to pick up in terms of what a teacher is doing in that similar 2D situation. So I think um, it's an incomplete tool. It's the best that we have. Um, I do think that the best communicators in terms of teachers are going to be winning um, because now they now have to find another way to teach dancers that they did not have before. And the ones that are able to really translate um, the information that they would otherwise put into the classroom into a way that can reach students are the ones that are going to be successful. I don't think that it's an impossible task. I do think that it does require teachers to think differently and to utilize different different teaching skills that's going to allow students to get from point A to point B. Um, I also think the teachers and the um, the schools that are going to win and come out on top in this format are the ones that are going to adjust quickly, the ones that are open to change, and also the ones that are going to use different um, teaching styles and really utilize, again, looking at all of the different components of dance technique and training that is necessary to bolster the students. So, for example, if you are not able to train your technique at 70% and you got and you got 90% of let's say your training and technique in school, there are the things that complete a dancer from a professional perspective. There's nutrition, there's sleep, there's cross training, there's technique training, there is um professional networking, there's mentorship, there's leadership, there's so many other things that that really complete a professional dancer. The smart schools and the smart students are going to start really working on those other components. So when this pandemic is finally over, they are actually coming out on top. So um, that's my thoughts on that. That's great. I have many thoughts from that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You're talking about, you know, the ability to really correct the nuanced elements of technique and you're using ballet as an example, but you actually work with a lot of dancers in many different genres outside of ballet. Um, Mm -hmm. My expertise is in ballet. So um, we can kind of go back and forth in and out of ballet. Um, I, you know, there are ways in which good ballet technique are anatomically advantageous. And then there are other ways in which, good ballet technique are problematic, (laughs) right? So when you talk about the teachers being unable to address some of those issues, there's something in my my mind that's saying that could be a problem and that could be a benefit, (laughs) you know, that maybe teachers can't drive home some of those less healthy technical stylistic patterns. Um, So I don't know if you want to speak to that and maybe... Yeah, take me out of ballet since, um, you know, since you're working with dancers in different disciplines and tell me how that translates into other genres. Well, I think, um, I mean, again, it depends on your lens and from which point of view you're looking at the situation. Um, I do remember at the beginning of the pandemic that a lot of teachers were like, we can't teach online. This is not good. We can't touch the students. We can't do this. We can't do that. You know, like, how can they jump? They have no space to jump. And there was all of these complaints, right? 
And uh, it was an interesting phenomenon that happened. If, if you guys were paying attention, once the frenzy of like, oh, yes, guys, we are shutting down and we're going to be home and we're socially distancing, once that hit, everybody's attention immediately went to social media and went online. And it was really interesting to see this flood of performing artists and dancers offering all of this free content. It was amazing. So there were so many classes. There were so many free classes. There were so many um, performing artists and established artists, established dancers giving free classes. And on the other side of that, I saw a lot of schools say, oh, no, you can't do things online. You have to stay with us. So it was a really interesting rebound reaction to how the market, so to speak, was was reacting to the lack of access for dancers to actually dance. They were providing it in a completely different way. Um, and schools were like, no, we want it this way. So when we're thinking about didactic training and we, we're thinking about, you know, having a set system and a set standard for training, um, there's a lot to say for um, having a set standard of how students are trained, but there's also a lot to say for variation. And uh, what I found myself telling my dancers was that, okay, if you can't dance, if you cannot dance with your school, go take a class online. And they're like, yeah, but it's not my, it's not my usual teachers. And I'm like, that's a good thing. Because a lot of young dancers, specifically the pre-professional ones, they don't realize that sometimes you pick up different skill sets from different teachers and from different styles. And I think a lot of the fear and the retraction that um, um, schools had were really around the, the fear that they may find something better or find something different that they liked, you know, um, because they were like, oh, wow, I, oh, oh, all of a sudden I can, I can get my developing, you know, even better with just that simple cue, because again, it comes back to teaching styles and it comes back to learning styles. So I, I do think that you can, you know, there's a lot of people that are like, well, this is bad and, this, you know, you shouldn't do this and we are at a deficit here. Um, but you definitely can, you know, you know, rearrange that picture, you know, 180 and look at it from a different lens. Students now have way more exposure to other styles and ways of training than they have ever had before. You know, they're now aware of, oh, this is a different way that you can, you know, describe how to do a pirouette. Well, this is a different way of how you can describe how to do a developing. And I think that this way of understanding how to perform this movement is better for me versus this one. So they now have a little bit more options, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think for students, that's an amazing thing because way too often, specifically when we're talking in the ballet world, you know, we get, you know, we get stuck in, you know, you're in one school. So you're exposed to one specific style and maybe it works for you which is great but at the end of the day your professional career is not going to be in that school it's going to be in the wider world so you're going to have to learn to understand and to be versatile in understanding how different choreographers speak and how different choreographers may express motion or movement or want you to move so I think that early exposure to variety I think is very essential in terms of developing a dancer's vocabulary and helping them to understand how to perform movements, um, but most importantly, what movements and how teaching styles work best for them, which I don't think is something that they usually get exposed to. So, Yeah, it starts to get into sort of 
helping them understand their identity and the in the whole picture of the student teacher relationship. Yeah, um, absolutely. Have you have you treated any injuries that were the direct result of virtual instruction? Actually, I have. Um, and this happened very early on in quarantine. It was really interesting. I had a pretty young dancer. She's about 14, 15, 14. Um, and her school quickly transitioned to online. You know, they had a very clear vision and pivoted very early. Um, and she she didn't have the best floors at home. And she was doing some city allegro and landed wrong, did something funky. And when she got to me, um, couldn't, you know, had a pretty serious knee strain, couldn't straighten her knee all the way, couldn't bend it all the way. Um, and it took, a, it took a bit of a while. I would say it took maybe about four to five weeks of, of rehab online to get her going. But we were able to get her going, get her full range, um, get her a lot more stable. And it really was kind of like a fluke technique um, situation. Um, I think the things that are going to start coming out um, of online training, um, in the beginning, I think really, um, which that injury was reflective of, is students had to kind of just figure out their environment and figure out, okay, this is not the best for returns. Or, you know, I may need to move, you know, you know, the furniture back a little bit more. They're not aware of their power. They're not, they're not aware of their environment and how it affects their ability to dance. Um, so for example, turns on carpet is totally different to turns on tile, of course, you know, two completely different surfaces. And I think a lot of students are going to have, you know, in the beginning, a little bit of, um, troubleshooting of like, ah, that's not a good idea. We shouldn't do that again. You know? So, um, so yeah, that's what I've seen so far. And do you think um, there might be more fallout that emerges? I mean, you said in the beginning that you're mostly seeing people who are kind of having more extreme issues. Um, Mm -hmm. So do you think that maybe virtual dance instruction isn't as dangerous as we were initially concerned about? Or do you think it's just going to take a little more time for the issues um, to emerge? I think it's going to take a little bit more time for the issues to emerge. The movement patterns that dancers are doing hasn't changed. The dosage has changed. The application has changed. And the frequency has changed. That's it. Um, I think that there are different types of... I, I think the frequency in which we're seeing certain injuries are going to change in terms of online training. Um, because things have, I would say... If I had to make a guesstimate, I would say things have slowed down to maybe 50, 60 percent of their max intensity, what they've used, what they're usually used to doing. The second that ramps up again, we're back to square one. Nothing is going to change. OK, they're still, they're still going to be doing ground batmas. They're still going to be doing developers. They're still going to be doing jeté. They're still going to be doing pirouettes. Their movement patterns are not changing. So the injury incidence is not going to change. I think it's going to present differently because. The certain variables that I described before have changed, um, but it's not going to go away. Um, I do think that because of the pandemic and the nature of the pandemic has made people um, very reticent to seek help because there's that fear of, you know, the the COVID-19 and everything that it brings with it. But it doesn't mean that it's not there. It just means that they're not acting on it. I, I I can tell you for a fact that a lot of people, and, and this extends past dance, um, general population, 
people still have the same issues. And I would say for a lot of people, depending on what injuries we're talking about, neck pain, back pain, knee pain, it's actually more pronounced. The reason why we're not seeing it manifesting in the clinic is because they don't want to come in. There's that fear of going outside. There's that um, there there financial concerns that people are out of work. You know, do I have money to pay for a copay or do I have money to pay for a physical therapist? There's that fear of it's not very important right now. I don't need to worry about this because I would rather sit the back pain versus getting infected with COVID. I think that's the limiting factor. I don't think that these things have magically disappeared. They're just not showing up now. And we'll see them later, sooner or later. I don't. I think we'll need to definitely look at the data, and there's there's time that we need to spend on looking at the incidents and how these injuries are presenting for our dancers to see exactly really what the true effects of COVID has been. Um, but it's it's there. We're just not seeing it now. It's there. Speaking of data. Um... Do you know of anybody collecting this data? I've seen a few people talking about it. I've seen some murmurs, but I don't know outright um, if anyone is really collecting um, explicit data. Do you know? And um, what data would you be interested in seeing? What sort of questions do you think it's important for researchers to be asking right now? Got it. Um, I haven't heard anything about data collection at this point. Um, um, the last that I've I've heard in the dance world is really just the you know the focus on like what does getting back to dance look like how how are yeah. we making sure that dancers are getting back safely? I think a lot of this conversation has focused around that. Um, I think um, it's something that is sorely needed. Um, we need to study um, what the effects of COVID um, is going to be in terms of as as a as a limiting factor on dance, but also exposure to COVID for individual dancers. What does that look like? Um, I think it's something that definitely needs to be studied. Um, and I think it really can act as a model of, you know, things that we need to do um, with other injury incidences um, or other disease processes, I should say. Um, how do dancers react when they have a bronchial infection? How do dancers act, um, perform when they have heart um, been exposed to serious cardiovascular issues? Those are things that have not been really studied in the dance world. In the dance world, there's a lot of there's a lot of amazing research out there, but we also have a lot of holes, a lot of things that we have not connected the dots on. And I think this is an amazing opportunity for us to open some doors to look at dance from a way more holistic perspective. Um, really get more disease incidences because dancers do suffer with these things. Dancers do have heart conditions and do have breathing problems and asthma and, um, you know, we, we, we do suffer with these things. You know, generally we're a healthy population, but there are those dancers that could be helped with that sort of data. I do think that this can be a model for the sports world in general, you know, because we are part of the sports world. And this is just data and information that needs to be studied more closely and it can definitely be extrapolated to the general population. We are a healthier sector of the health population, but as you know, healthy people are dying from COVID. So we we just need more information. It's new. It's relatively new in the medical world. Um, as much information as we can get 
um, to study how it presents and how it affects people, healthy people, um, lay people like you and I, um, or, um, you know, high-level performance athletes like dancers. It's just really going to give us a broader scope of how to treat this disease and make sure that we don't have another pandemic of this nature um, again. Yeah, the um, general health of dancers is an area that's often neglected in research, and we hope to be tapping into that more this season um, and just talking about, you know, dancers are, are people, too. Yeah, <laughs> so of talking course. about some of, of those course. general health concerns. Um and it's also interesting, I mean, some of the research that people were using in terms of predicting injuries returning from quarantine were, say, from um, the NFL strike that happened, was it NFL, that happened a while ago, you know, and, and it's interesting, we don't know how the data will serve future populations, you know, when they did that data, when they collected that data, they didn't know it was going to maybe help people who were quarantined during a pandemic for example so um it'll be interesting to see how this can transfer to other other sectors um do you think do you think there's a future for virtual dance instruction or is this all going to just disappear as soon as possible as soon as we can get back in the studio Uh, it's gone (laughs) i know i absolutely think a door has opened that will not be closed um here's the thing again dance is so three-dimensional it it is there are very clear difficult um difficulties with teaching it on in a virtual space however the thing that this this pandemic has opened is access and let's face it everybody wants to dance everybody wants to feel free everyone wants to feel connected and the ability for uh, a joffrey ballet teacher to teach someone in europe is is priceless. I'm telling you, there are people that want that, and uh, the ability for us to now connect with um, amazing teachers, amazing artists. Um, that is now all we need is a screen and an internet connection versus hopping on a plane, going through an audition, all of that stuff. Um, I think is um, a, a tool that I think the dance world. In my opinion, if it is smart, we'll continue to use. There's so many ways that we can use this to our advantage to leverage the in-person connections that we make. Um, so, for example, imagine having um, a, a, an audition process that involves the world instead of just everyone in your city. Imagine a situation where... Um, conservatories don't have to go from city to city to do auditions, but they can now do it online and start really screening students before they even buy a plane ticket or before they book a hotel to come into the city. You know, you're now talking about increased access. You're now talking about decreased costs. You're now talking about the schools and those organizations widening the scope of how many, how many students can they look at? Can they get the best talent? Um, I think the opportunities are endless to really um, leverage connection in the dance community um, on so many levels, not just the teaching, um, but with education, with collaboration, with performances. Um, I think that I think the opportunities are endless. So it it it's I think way more than a silver lining. I think it's a new door that's been definitely opened um, 
that hopefully we can really use to our advantage to really just improve the dance community in a way better way than it is right now. Yeah, I agree. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Any um, information you want to add or contact info or um, resources that you'd like to share? Of course. Um, So you guys can um, connect with me online, social media. I'm on Facebook. Um, My company's name is System of Flex Physical Therapy. Um, I go by Dmail on Facebook. On Instagram, it's three, the number three, PTDC. On Twitter, I am I'm very much a newbie to Twitter, so <laughs> forgive me if I'm slow on that. Um, also, it's free PTDC. I'm most active on Instagram. Um, I love collaboration. I love to connect. Um, so feel free to reach out there and, you know, shoot me a message, wave hi, um, let me know who you are. I'm happy to chat with you. Um, in terms of resources, um, I do think that um, there's so many people right now that are giving amazing resources online for dancers. I encourage you guys to um, connect with dance physical therapists um, that are utilizing the um, the virtual space and using um, social media to really educate um, dancers on things that they need during this time. And, and, and really, even though there is a window of opportunity and we think, okay, this is going to be over just now. And then we can get back to real life, quote unquote, real life. Um, There is definitely going to be a new normal. And um, there is so many opportunities online that um, so many amazing dance physical therapists are doing online. I encourage you guys to reach out with them. For myself personally, I do have um, an online cross-training program um, specifically geared for dancers in the pre-professional and the professional range. It's called Dance Bridge Online. Um, amazing program that will allow you to, at any point in time, pandemic or not, really get on top of your game in terms of upping your performance, getting you on your leg, getting your leg higher, getting your balance intact, getting your core engaged, all of the stuff that your teacher tells you to do but doesn't quite tell you how to do it, this is the how. Um, so, you know, that's definitely a tool that you can use. And um, once you guys do connect with me online, specifically on Facebook, IG, or Twitter, and you go to that link, because I have so many free resources for dancers that you guys can um, take a look at. Um, so happy to connect. I'm excited to connect with all of you guys. Um, we'll put all of that in the show notes um, so that people can access you easily. Thank you, Danelle Dixon. This has been really informative. Yes, thank you so much for having me. On behalf of Marissa and myself, I, Ellie Kushner, want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of Dancewell Podcast. Our intro soundscape was composed by the dynamic duo Brendan Berry and Dylan Ezzy, and dancer-designer Katie Dean crafted our visual image. To those of you who have made this season possible by contributing to Dancewell, we are infinitely grateful. We wouldn't be where we are without you. Your donations help pay for our SoundCloud membership, website fees and upgrades, and our recording technology. If you too would like to make a donation to Dancewell, please follow the link in the description of this podcast to visit our GoFundMe page. We thank you in advance for your support. And lastly, if you like what you hear, we invite you to go to iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and search Dancewell Podcast to subscribe. You can also view all of our episodes and learn more about this podcast by visiting our website, www.dancewellpodcast.com. 
And if you have any questions or want to get in touch, email us at dancewellpodcast at gmail.com. Bye.